I thought perhaps this evening uh, I could usefully talk about how we uh, actually apply the Buddha's teachings that we hear about, that we study, that we have uh, confidence in. But surely, the, as they say, the proof is in the pudding that if these teachings are really relevant, that means that they will translate into how we live our lives, benefiting ourselves and and also benefiting the world that we live in. So I'm sure uh, all of us will be uh, familiar with the various uh, religious systems around, that are around now, that were similarly around in the time of the Buddha, where what is promoted is a belief system. And uh, engaging, picking up, uh, grasping the beliefs is expected uh, to produce some sense of increased well-being. And what it may do is appease uh, feelings of insecurity because we feel sure about something. But this, this sense of certainty, is it really sure? Is it really safe? And we don't have to look very far before we see how a lot of uh, conflicts in our world are caused by people holding in uh, less than uh, compassionate and wise ways to their belief systems. So certainly the Buddha uh, was not promoting a belief system and what he uh, offered us and what he described was a pointing. He said, I can but point the way. And, but he said, you've got to walk it. And so that's, that's an important understanding that we need to all have if we're going to engage the Buddhist teachings. This is not a belief system. It's not something that we're expected to pick up and, and cling and make ourselves uh, or expect to feel good as a result. We may well do that. Uh, certainly I remember my own experience of coming across Buddhist teachings in my late teens, I think, and it was a huge sense of relief. Oh, here's something at last that I, I can really go along with. And there was a lot of good feeling came with that. And... We can mistake the good feeling as the goal, but actually the good feeling is incidental. That good feeling is just like what happens when you get a break from, from a headache. You feel better. So, but that's not the goal. That's not the point of the Buddhist teaching, to just feel good because we have something that uh, 
we feel like we can go along with. But rather what the Buddha was offering us was uh, what he called, what he referred to as skillful means. And the Pali word for that is ubaya. So these skillful means are, in fact, training that we are invited to pick up and to engage with, to put effort into, and then to see for ourselves. There's very much an invitation that the Buddha and all the great teachings have given us to test these things out. Yes, this is the teacher's experience, and try it out for yourself. That's the invitation. And see how it feels, see how it works. And it's neither blindly believing nor blindly disbelieving, which is equally important. And the middle way is the way of awareness, the way of opening to receiving with interest, with willingness to investigate, to find out for ourselves. And so as I started off by saying, the proof is in the pudding, does it work? Is it relevant? And how do we apply it to our daily life? And here in the monastery, some of you will be aware that uh, we've recently been dealing with the uh, possibility of acquiring some more land. The neighbor's farm has come up for sale. And uh, land does not often come up for sale in Northumberland. And so that's interesting. And uh, the trustees who run this monastery uh, quite responsibly uh, pay attention to that and, and they look at uh, the predicament we have here in the monastery where we do have very limited facilities for the resident community and the, uh, some of the uh, rooms that uh, the community live in are, are very, very, uh, very modest and and uh, we're, we're grateful for what we have, but uh, it's quite clearly the case that if we could expand just a little bit, it, would, uh, it could be beneficial. And, and similarly also for those, uh, the lay folk who, who seem to like to keep coming here from far and near, uh, it would be uh, really nice if we could have a few more facilities to accommodate uh, more people. And... So yes, we look at the situation and there's that farm and, and then there's, uh, the trustees have to of course look at the, the funding situation and, and weighing up these, these uh, variables and, and basically what you're faced with is a dilemma. This is, there's that land, it very rarely comes up for sale. It's right next to our property. It's, it's contiguous with our lake property down there and it's got a forest in it and a lake and various buildings and yeah it's really attractive on one side but on the other side that's a lot more extra work and yeah, the more you have the more responsibility you've got and and the more energy goes into management and the more issues you have to deal with and the more meetings and and meetings, as probably all of you know, can be very energy extravagant uh, events. And so, how do you make the right decision? Mm. Yeah. Now, this is not, you know, off sometimes people are faced with dilemmas that are a lot less pleasant than this one, like you know, getting divorced or 
or uh, moving overseas. Uh, but still, a dilemma is a dilemma. And I think it's, uh, it's, it's certainly relevant to look and, and see, does our commitment to this path of practice help us, support us? Well, I would say it certainly does. That I can think of various dilemmas that I've been faced with over the years in, in uh, running this community. I've been living here for now over 20 years and in this country for over 30 years and, and, uh, and living through this pioneer phase of, of translating, transplanting a, a very orthodox um, contemplative tradition uh, from from the uh, Southeast Asia to to here in uh, Western Europe it brings a lot of challenges and, and uh, many times one has been faced with dilemmas. How do you handle it? And I would say that uh, definitely as a result of practice that uh, I'm much better able. And I would say for us as a community also when we have uh, community meetings that we as a community here and the larger community of monasteries living in Ajahn Chah's family, we're much more skilled. This putting effort into the training, there are benefits on very practical levels. Now, we could be uh, talking about uh, our meditation practice and how good we are at, at freeing ourselves from, from the defilements and realization of path and fruit, and that's got its place as well. But I think also it's... Uh, it's pertinent to check to see that we're not just considering these teachings in a perhaps rarefied atmosphere of formal practice, but also looking to see, can we translate it into everyday life, into everyday situation? Uh, there's a real danger with religion that it becomes this rarefied, special, exclusive uh, activity that's only done on special occasions and, and my understanding of what the Buddha was offering us is this is not the case that this is something that he wanted us to be able to apply in all situations all time 24-7 that's uh, probably all familiar with seeing the Buddha image in the different postures here in our Dhamma hall we have the Buddha in the sitting posture you'll also see the Buddha in the standing Sometimes the lying down and sometimes the walking, the four postures. And, and the reason that the Buddha image is represented as icons in the sitting, standing, walking, lying down postures, the message is that the effort to realize the freedom that the Buddha realized is something that we apply in all situations, sitting, standing, walking, lying down. So the effort we make, if we don't have a training, if we don't have a teaching, if we don't have a, a way of, of orienting our attention, when we're faced with a dilemma, what do we do? Well, often we just end up feeling frustrated. And uh, so often it's the case, probably for all of us personally in our lives, and certainly we can witness it in others, that <clears throat> despite great affluence and convenience and, and the fact that uh, we live in a very secure, very fortunate circumstance, uh, many of us still end up feeling intensely frustrated. Mm -hmm. What's going on there? What is this frustration? We have such ready 
wonderful access to wonderful teachings and information and, and the ability to travel and to listen to teachings and, and to have good health care and, and to look after ourselves and our, our friends and our family. And yet still, when we encounter the intensity that is the experience of dilemma, when we encounter this intensity, it regularly trips us up. Why? What's going on? And this, and rather than this energy that we experience in the context of a dilemma, rather than this energy taking us deeper into understanding, into clarity, this energy is often experienced as the obstructions, as greed, as aversion, as confusion. That's what frustration translates into, greed, aversion and delusion, or what classically in Buddhism we refer to as the three poisons. When I don't get my way, in other words, when I'm confronted with a dilemma, when I don't get my way, I feel frustrated. And then, if I don't have a training, if I'm not skilled, if I haven't realised the skills that the Buddha was pointing to, if I don't have access to these skills, then this is what happens, very sadly. Greed, aversion and delusion. And in effect, we tragically poison our consciousness and tragically poison the world. In this wonderful world that we live in, this wonderful opportunity with these amazing minds that we have become um, tragically toxic. And instead of increased joy and well-being for ourselves and to share with others, we find we have an increased level of disappointment and dissatisfaction and despair. These teachings are aimed at equipping us with the skill so this doesn't happen. When we're faced with a dilemma, which we're guaranteed to have, because it's guaranteed to be the case that I'm not going to always get my way, even the Buddha didn't always get his way. He had to put up with starvation, with terrible, uncomfortable accommodation and, and intensely frustrating, irritating monks who wouldn't listen to what he had to say. And so he, he didn't want it that way, but that's how it was. But the Buddha didn't suffer. And the big difference between the Buddha and us is not that he didn't have frustrating circumstances that he had to endure. He did, for sure. Worse than us, actually, a lot of the time. But his way of relating to that energy that we experience as frustration was unobstructed. Ours is obstructed. And so we have this training, we have this opportunity, and that's why the invitation, it's so important that we understand it and find our own way of engaging it. And the invitation is to cultivate. It's not, as I said, to believe or to grasp at ideas, but to cultivate Awareness, to cultivate our consciousness, to cultivate mindfulness and wise reflection. And these are, again to emphasize, these are not belief systems. This is not just information that we need to take on board. But these are faculties. Mindfulness is identified as one of the five spiritual faculties. There's santa or Trust, which is a faculty. If we can't trust, we're really in deep trouble. If we've always got to feel certain about everything, we're really going to struggle. Trust is an important faculty. Energy 
is another faculty. Mindfulness, concentration, discernment, these five spiritual faculties, they're like the physical faculties we have, the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, these, these faculties we have, if they're not functioning efficiently, well, we, we tend to trip up and all over the place. So. so these spiritual faculties, the invitation is to recognize them, identify them, and then hone them down. And so, so particularly this mindfulness, uh, this mindfulness and wise reflection. Not just mindfulness as some technique that we might learn somewhere, but mindfulness that's rightly informed by wise reflection. So in Pali, there's sati panya, these, these two words in the tradition, you often hear them going together, sati, mindfulness, panya, wise reflection, or could also be called truth discerning awareness. So this is the offering, this is the invitation, is to cultivate this. Now, if we're committed to this, if we're committed to the cultivation of this awareness, this quality of awareness, this quality of consciousness, if we trust in this, if we're investing this, if we're committed to the cultivation of this, then greed, aversion, and delusion is not an obligation. Frustration is not an obligation. We don't have to default to despair and disappointment and disillusionment if we're committed to the cultivation of awareness. So the reason I'm raising it uh, this evening for our uh, contemplation is because if we really want to make these teachings applicable, uh, we do need to approach them with this understanding that this awareness that we live out of, we can engage it, we can do something about it. It can be obstructed, it can be polluted, and we can make that worse. You know, our commitment to deluded egoity, the agony of a commitment to egoity, that's the normal condition. I've just been visiting down south and travelling through various cities and staying in various places and, and the extraordinary affluence that we live in and yet, the, as we would all know, the extraordinary degree of frustration that is prevalent everywhere. Say, what's going on here? You know, what's happening? Well, it's because, very simply, people are committed to egoity. They're not committed to awareness. You know, they're not committed to that in which all this activity is taking place. They're not cultivating the knowing of the world they're lost in the world. Yeah. That's the difference. That's, again, the difference between the Buddha and us. The Buddha, as you say, loka we do, the knower of the world. The Buddha lived in the world, had his feet on the ground. He didn't have wings and flap around. Sometimes people think the Buddha didn't actually walk on the earth. He was, he was enlightened, so he's just a little bit above the earth. You know, that's probably not a useful way of thinking. The Buddha had his feet on the ground. He used to enjoy eating a decent meal and harmonious environment and, and nice weather just as we do. And when he was old and had arthritis in his spine, he had pain just as we do. But he didn't have suffering. And that's the difference. And so the Buddha experienced all the changing conditions, all the dilemmas, and a lot more, as I said, a lot more than we do. But the Buddha was identified as the awareness the free, unobstructed awareness in which all this was taking place. 
So this is what we can be doing. We can be cultivating, we can be investing in awareness itself. Truth discerning awareness, we can be investing in that. That's our refuge when we bow down to the Buddha. So I go for refuge to the Buddha. That's what we're going for refuge to. That possibility, that truth discerning awareness. And so when we're confronted with a dilemma, do we cathect, do we contract into clinging and grasping and becoming the problem? Or do we remember the refuge and expand and make an effort to abide as the awareness in which this dilemma is taking place? This dilemma is a movement. With this dilemma of to buy or not to buy the the neighbour's farm, it can feel like struggle. That's what dilemmas feel like. But the mistake we make because of our habit of clinging is we become the struggle. We become the apparent problem. We become the content of awareness and forget that we can just exercise the effort to abide as the awareness. Now, this is a really important understanding to take on board. That if we want to make these teachings relevant, this is what we need to remember when we're faced with frustration, we've got a choice. If there's truth discerning awareness, if there's mindfulness present, then we don't have to follow the habit of collapsing into becoming, or bhava as the Buddha called it. We don't have to do that. It's not an obligation. That's what the, the word in Pali, the word the Buddha used was samsara. Cyclic rebirth and deluded existence. You know, something liking arises, you cling to it, and you become it, and then, and then it passes away, and then you suffer. Something disliking arises, you cling to it, and then you become it, and then it passes away. And this goes on and on and on. And this is, this is the experience, tragically, for most beings. You might have, uh, some of you might have heard me uh, relate a, a, an incident I, of a experience I had once when I was traveling I think it was through I think it was through an airport in Belgium where they had uh, some time between flights and I was just walking up and down it was a long uh, waiting area there and so I could just walk up and down and I was doing that and in the process of walking past one of these cosmetic shops one of the one of the salespeople came out a very dignified woman, dressed in bright red, and and she approaches me, very, very charming and polite, and says, "What are you doing?" And I, and I said, "Well, I'm, uh, I'm just walking up and down. You know, what are you doing?" And she says, "Oh, well, I'm selling samsara." <laughs> and, and you may or may not have heard that there's a perfume, well, there was a perfume called samsara. I don't know if it's still around. Uh, there was a, a rather gross uh, advertisement created of uh, a lady dressed, dressed in uh, bright red crawling across the shrine table and taking this perfume out of the lap of the Buddha. And uh, I think it was quite appropriately met with, with some, uh, some criticism and a lack of sensitivity. Anyway, this, uh, this lady in the airport was selling samsara and uh, so I said, well, do you know, do you know what that means? <laughs> And she says, oh, no, tell me. So I said, oh, it means endless rebirth and deluded existence. She says, oh, really? And so then she called all the other salespeople out. And you tell them, please tell them what it means. And, 
and they, um, it wasn't really an opportunity for, for trying to encourage them to see through the con of deluded existence, and they all seemed to think that it was rather fun that they were marketing of this uh, perpetual rebirth and deluded existence. But it's not fun, actually. It, it is a con, and uh, the most fragrant perfume and the most beautiful uh, advertisement does not protect us from the agony, the excruciating agony that we all suffer when we're committed to egoic existence, when we believe that we are the conditioned being, the me that's got a history and got all these problems and all these credentials and all these goals and all the stuff of my life. There's nothing wrong with it. So long as we see it as dust floating through empty space. But if we really get, if we get that dust in our eyes, even if it's gold dust, if we get it in our eyes, we suffer and we cry. And it's terrible. It's not fun at all. Uh, where our world is full of, of unhappy uh, people. And, and it doesn't have to be that way. Yes, the Buddha and all the great beings lived in this world and they weren't living in palaces, they weren't living in luxury. It's not that they were free from pain, they had pain, but because they were abiding as the awareness in which pleasure and pain could arise and cease, because they had that secure abiding, that freedom, because they realised that freedom that's possible for human beings, they didn't suffer. Yes, they had pain, yes, they had disappointment, but they didn't suffer. So the invitation is, uh, is rare. This is, not, uh, this is not necessarily, well, it's not at all the approach that a lot of uh, religious teachings will offer. Uh, this is a, a training that we're offered, an opportunity we're offered to invest in, to engage in. And it, it takes daring. You know, you have to dare to let go of the old and to dare to let go of the familiar. And uh, that daring doesn't necessarily come to us easily because we are, quite frankly, we were all addicted to security. So long as we still experience ourselves to be this conditioned body-mind, so long as we still find our identity in this, the sense of me-ness, in this experience, in any experience, so long as we're still doing that, then we feel, actually, we feel threatened by uncertainty, by insecurity. And so daring to go into uncertainty, daring to go into the unknown, daring to let go of the familiar is risky. It's not attractive to the deluded ego. It is attractive to awareness. There is a part of us, that's why we're here. There is a part of us that hears the sense of this. But we do have to make effort. This is the kind of effort we need to make. We don't have to make the effort to defend Buddhism. We don't have to promote Buddhism. We don't have to spread Buddhism. But the Buddha did want us, us to, to realize the benefit for ourselves. 
And so making the effort is not one of promoting or defending, but of feeling our way into increased willingness. Willingness is a distinct attitude. So it's a word that's worth reflecting on. The willingness to explore. The willingness to take risks. We're protected by our commitment to the precepts. Our commitment to integrity is what gives us a protection. If we don't have a commitment to integrity, which is what the precepts are about, if we don't have that, well then we are genuinely vulnerable. But with our commitment to training in the precepts and cultivating the spirit of integrity, with that we are genuinely safe to explore, to investigate. And so the willingness to follow our interest in discovering something really new, something really different, is the kind of effort we're encouraged to make. Not the effort to become happy or sure or even the effort to become confident. Sometimes, in fact, what's needed is the willingness to really feel like we've lost our confidence. You know, if you're moving from a spurious level of faith that's more a kind of belief into an experience of truth discerning awareness, we're making that movement, then we will lose the familiar feeling of confidence that we used to have. But if that familiar feeling of confidence was really secure and safe, well, we wouldn't have to do any practice. But obviously that previously familiar feeling of confidence wasn't enough. So that's why we feel drawn to cultivate. And if we engage the practice of cultivation, of awareness, then it does mean moving through periods of loss of confidence. But we can be mindful of that. We can be aware of that. All right, this is what it feels like to lose confidence. This is what doubt feels like. This is what the fear of uncertainty feels like. This is what not knowing feels like. And this is really applicable. This is really helpful in daily life. I was talking to somebody earlier today who who very recently um, had a change in their career and uh, there was a, it was quite a big deal. They'd been in a job for a long time and it was a significant job and but uh, it wasn't um, ticking all the boxes so he wanted to change and he had two options. And having held this dilemma with, I'm sure, a, a decent degree of, of awareness and, and exercising a discernment, he made his decision. Okay, I'm not going to take that job, I'm going to take this one. But what still remained was the thought, mm, maybe I should have taken that one. Yeah. Well, of course you can think like that. Yeah. But is that skillful? Is that helpful? Is that wise? Is that... Well, the only reason we become obsessed with such thoughts is because we're addicted to feeling sure. Yeah. We're allowed in this practice, this is a wonderful thing, we're allowed to be unsure. With awareness, with a feeling of awareness, you can be aware of uncertainty. I don't know. Did I make the right decision or not? I don't know. That's all right. You don't have to know. Only if we're still lost in the agony of egoic existence do we make a problem out of not knowing. Awareness doesn't make a problem out of not knowing. So there's this opportunity to cultivate this 
And the, it takes this effort, the willingness, the humility to wait you know, when you're faced with a dilemma. If we're committed to clinging and feeling certain, then we don't have that agility. We don't have that. The agility is one of the characteristics of humility, the ability to tolerate not knowing and uncertainty and to wait. Is it the right time yet? To wait for the solution to emerge rather than me doing it. Again, this is particularly important. We note this with our, our commitment to spiritual life. Our identification as the deluded ego is all about doing, controlling, manipulating conditions. That's what it's good at. That's what the deluded ego really tries to master. As much as possible, control and manipulate everything all of the time. And we become so used to it, and everybody else around us is doing it, that if we're not careful, we can bring that into our spiritual inquiry as well. Even though that's not what the Buddha encouraged or invited us to do, we can do it. So the next thing you know, we're doing meditation. We're busy concentrating. We're busy trying to be mindful. We're busy trying to become compassionate and wise and all the rest of it and getting ourselves out more tangled and more collapsed and more confused. So we've got to be careful about that. That this, this, this invitation is to let go of clinging, to let go of compulsive doing. It's not just hanging out, obviously. You know, we're talking about letting go of compulsive doing, compulsive controlling. Of course there's a time for controlling and doing. But it's where it's coming from this place of me, of rigidity, of a collapsed field of awareness, that it simply doesn't work. And if we are stuck in that, as many of us are, and often because we've received our Dhamma teachings from people who live in a culture where they're not particularly into that way of operating. You know, any of you who lived in, in places like Thailand for, for a while, you know, they're really into chilling out and relaxing and not just eating food and being happy, <laughs> big time. And they're very good at it, you know. Perhaps that's one reason why their monks are so so uh, super serious. You look at the photographs of some of these Thai monks, they've got a real scowl on their face and looking like they're having a really hard time. Well, actually, you're setting a good example for, for those people who are out of balance in that direction. In fact, this is something that uh, somebody questioned Ajahn Chah once about this very smiley photograph of him. He's got a great big smile on his dial and somebody asked him, how come... You know, you let that photo come out. He said, oh, some Westerner took that photo and you've got to smile for Westerners because they're all so miserable. And uh, the, the Thais is just busy laughing and giggling all the time. That you know, They don't need that kind of encouragement. But we do. And likewise, from very early on in our life, we, we're told, we're conditioned, we're programmed to concentrate, focus, pay attention, narrow down your field of awareness until it becomes our only identity. We live in this really, really narrow world, the sense of there's no space for all this tremendous energy that, that we have in our hearts. And so for us, 
more focusing, more contracting, more concentrating is perhaps the last thing we need to be doing. You know, what we need to do is experiment with this, investigate, get interested, and perhaps try out the opposite. You know, try not doing, expanding, not doing meditation. And it's often the advice I give to people, and they come and say, I've been meditating for years. And, uh, uh, yeah. So I say, well, just stop it. You know, just stop it. Stop meditating. Oh, no, I can't stop meditating. My life will fall apart. Because the meditation is another expression of compulsive controlling, which I'm not saying is bad, just saying it doesn't work, that's all. It's not bad, it's, you know, it's what we do, we try. We're trying hard to get it right. But if we're skillful in our effort, in our investigation, we're checking to see, is this working or not? So if that's not working, well, we try something else. And so the humility to try something new, to open, to expand. When we're committed to deluded egoity, there's a rigidity, there's promoting me, there's talking about, there's writing about, there's posting on our social network, all my attributes. And uh, When there's a commitment to awareness, there's a disinclination to feed those things. What we feel drawn to is a flexibility and agility of mind that if you see something unwholesome arise, you can humbly accept it and say, yeah, that was unskillful. And then we don't have to collapse and become it. We don't have to cling to it. We can be more honest. And our practice starts to deepen naturally. You know, the deepening is not something we do. The deepening into an ability to tolerate uncertainty, this ability for meeting the dilemmas of life, is something that we're more likely to witness as a natural process when we own up to the mistakes we make, when when we get it wrong, when we collapse, when we cling, when we misperceive such as when we when we feed. The old habits, yeah. we own up to it. Say, all oh, right, that's what I'm doing. And it's not an obligation. Say, all oh, right, that's an old habit. But it's the awareness that knows the habit. Yeah. That's the refuge. So that's when we bow to the Buddha. That's what we reflect in. I go for refuge to the Buddha. We're going for refuge to this possibility, this possibility of awareness that knows dilemmas as dilemmas. Thank you very much this evening for your attention. Sadhu Karam Tatama Se Sadhu Karam Tatama Se